Welcome to The Drift, your resource on all things business strategy, entrepreneurship, and leadership. I'm your host, Aloisa, and today's guest is quite a phenomenon in the fitness industry. From managing mega brands like Crunch, Equinox, and Flywheel, she's leveraging her strategies and expertise to push brands forward in health and wellness. Welcome, Vanessa. Thanks so much for that intro. I'm excited to be here today. Excited to have you. Thanks for coming on. So can you share with us a little background on yourself and what got you started? Sure. Um, so I've been in the fitness industry for about 20 years. I'm really aging myself when I say that. Um, I guess when, you know, when I went to college, I, you know, just went for English literature and interpersonal and organizational communication. I have two degrees. What does that even mean? I had no idea what I was doing. I always thought I was going to be an attorney. Then it was time to move forward with that plan. And I was like, you know what? I think I need a break from school. So when it came time to find a job, I honestly had no direction. I wasn't one of those people that, you know, thought like, okay, this is going to be like the perfect job for me. Other than being an attorney, I really didn't have like a plan B. So when I graduated from school, I just started applying to brands that I thought would be fun to work at, right? I just thought sitting in a cubicle is my absolute worst nightmare. I'm a social butterfly. I need to be around people. And I ended up getting my first job at the Crunch Corporate Office in New York City. And this was back in 2001 when the founder, Doug Levine, had still owned the company. And it's very different. You know, the brand has evolved um, quite a bit since then. But it was a very fun, work hard, play hard environment um, there in New York City. And then from there, you know, one thing led to another. Then I moved down to Florida, opened up the first two Equinox locations down here, ended up working at David Barton Gym, actually. Adam Hirsch, my mentor, who gave me my first job at Crunch, hired me again at David Barton. I was there for four years, went to Flywheel, conceptualized a project here in Miami for a year, grew that to three locations, and then started my own consulting business during the pandemic. Like everyone was just kind of like, what's next in my career? And most recently, I'm the vice president of marketing for Active Life. Wow, that is quite a background. And I didn't even realize it until now, but definitely a lot of mutual contacts in the space. You know, I think one thing that I really resonate is just the concept of being inside the fitness and wellness industry as a whole. I mean, I'm the same as you, whereas I don't want to be sitting in a sitting behind a computer on a desk all day. Like I want to be able to have those interactions and the cool thing about fitness and wellness is that you really get a such a cool mix of everything. You get to interact with fitness instructors and sales associates, but then you also get to interact with the members who come up from all different types of backgrounds. And that was always the most exciting part. Oh yeah. You create so many relationships and that's really what it's all about connecting with people. And I think, you know, no matter what your role is in the fitness industry, you really have to be a great communicator because you are interacting with so many different types of people. So that's definitely something that I've learned and also never burn a bridge. Cause like you said, this is a small industry and you always come across people. So you never burn a bridge. <laughs> Completely agree. I mean, as big as it can be, the industry is very small at the same time. And once you're in the game, you definitely kind of know a little bit of everybody and a little bit of everything that's happening in the space. You know, speaking of relationships, above all things, 
I've found that, and I'm sure you're seeing as well, is that customer lifetime value was the name of the game, is the name of the game. So kind of fast forwarding into current state, how are you seeing brands successfully bridge the gap between in-person and digital experiences to ultimately increase customer longevity engagement? Right. Well, I think there's a lot of things, you know, obviously we've been through just a very tumultuous time, right? And I think that it's really easy to say, okay, I'm this fitness brand. Now, all of a sudden I have to go to this digital offering and there's all this conversation happening that like digital fitness is where it's at. Brick and mortar is dead. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, you know, I had heard the statistic. I'm not sure if it's a hundred percent accurate that the average lifetime value of a digital consumer is four months. And then in boutique fitness, you know, I mean, in the fitness industry, in general, we had kind of developed this bad reputation. Remember back in the day, Bally Total Fitness made people sign three-year commitments and they were paying like $12 a month, but it was a three-year commitment and then the annual commitment. And then from there, boutique fitness really rose with the month-to-month payment. Um, so I think really at the heart of it all is consumers want options, right? They want to be able to be flexible. They want to the brands, the fitness brands to really meet them where they're at. And that might be in person, it might be digitally, or it might be a combination thereof. Um, I think some some brands that have handled this really nicely would be like Lifetime, where they, you know, they have experience life where they offer online fitness classes, they have the in-person experience, but then they also include Apple Plus, um, Apple Fitness Plus as a part of the membership as well. Instead of competing with Apple, they just bundled the service, which I think is really smart because so many people, you know, the, the digital fitness space is so competitive and why go up against a brand like Apple with unlimited resources and already a captive audience? Why not just jump on that train? I think Orange Theories handled it really well um, with, you know, offering home workouts, but I think it's interesting that they charge a premium to access the at-home workouts in addition to the in-studio experience. It's just been really interesting to see how all of these businesses and brands are handling things. Um, I don't know that one is necessarily handling it better. It depends on who your audience is and your customer base, right? And what your value proposition in-studio is. Um, So it's been interesting. Yeah, definitely a lot to unpack here. One of the things that I keep thinking about is, you know, at the end of the day, throughout this entire period that we're in, we're all just trying to create a stickiness, like a sticky product. And it's funny because when we think about bridging that gap between in-person and digital, at the moment, I mean, people are really just throwing a noodle on the wall to see if it's going to stick, (laughs) Um, to be quite honest. And it's interesting to see how different brands are starting to, to create this approach of whether or not they charge a premium, if they create a whole new membership offering that's mostly a 50-50 approach, a hybrid model, and consumers can come in um, at any point inside a brick and mortar facility or even just take a set amount of classes online. And I think the one thing that I keep wanting to, one of the questions that I really go through in my mind is, you know, what's going to last? What are, What's going to last through the consumer standpoint? What are they going to think is something that's sustainable that they want to continue as part of their fitness regime for an extended period of time? 
Right. I mean, and I think nobody has that crystal ball. We would all love to have it. But I, I think that is also changing over time, right? I, th- I would encourage anybody that's an owner, operator, investor to really leverage their community, right? You have to, it doesn't matter what another brand is doing that's successful for them if your customers want something else, right? So you have to leverage your uh, customers to understand what is it that they want. Ask them, you know, and and continue to ask them over periods of time because that's going to be changing. I just, for myself as an example, right, during the pandemic, I had a bunch of different apps that I was a member at to, to work out from home because to me, working out is just my life. It's essential. And when that wasn't an option, I got apps and I worked out at home. Now, as soon as studios opened up again, canceled the apps, would not have zero interest in working out in my living room um, (laughs) in perpetuity and went right back into the in-studio experience. Now I have, you know, digital offerings that come with my membership, but I don't use them because I prefer to be in person. But that being said, I'm also working from home. So that to me is a part of the social interaction. Now, somebody else that's maybe going back to the office every day, maybe they don't want to go in in studio and they prefer to work out from home. There's a million different preferences out there and nobody really knows what the answer is. So why not just ask the consumers that you already have that are paying clients? I love that. And that's a, that's exactly what everybody needs to be doing. You know, in order for us to continue thriving as businesses, we have to just know and understand what our consumers are wanting and meet them where they are. You know, one of the things that I've also been hearing about as well is that digital programming and fitness could also be a lead driver to help mitigate the intimidation factor. So I'm not sure if you've kind of, if you've been hearing this as well, but for those that may have been afraid to walk into a fitness studio in the past, what's very interesting about digital programming now is that's giving them this confidence to get accustomed to the workout, get accustomed to the brand, get accustomed to the program. And actually then it encourages them to go back into the studio whenever they get an opportunity to. Um, I, I think yes and no, right? So I think digital can be really interesting if that's the point of entry for brick and mortar you can see where your consumers are based you can you know geo target you could say okay that would be a good location to open up because we're getting you know a certain amount of consumers are very densely populated in this geographic area however i do think that you know the fitness industry as a whole we haven't done the best job of reaching the masses because you know, we sell these, we push these like hit workouts, these get shredded for summer plans, weight loss, you know, it's all very like a heavy agenda. And it's like basically like the same few topics that keep rotating, right? So if we really want to reach those consumers that we haven't tapped into thus far, we have to change our messaging and our offering, right? What we've been doing hasn't resonated with those people. And a lot of people in the fitness industry hate Planet Fitness. They're like, oh my God, they give pizza and candy and the, I don't even remember what it's called, like clunko meter or something, the alarm if you drop your weights. But listen, they have experienced tremendous success because those people don't want that intimidation factor that you might get at like this hot, sexy hit training studio, right? So I think if we want to, reach those people digitally. We have to start 
talking to them in ways that resonate with them, right? Showing them people that look and feel and speak like them, not just the ripped trainer with the six pack abs that's telling somebody, hey, you have to get shredded to be happy or to be fit. And that's not necessarily, you know, the case. So I think, yeah, if we want to tap into this untapped market, we really have to offer them something that isn't just a duplicate of the in-person experience. I've heard of some studios offering, you know, in studio, they offer one experience and the at-home experience is complementary to that. It's more warm-ups and and different types of workouts so that you can kind of get the full experience. You get when you're digital, you're doing one type of workout and when you're in person, it's another. And that makes sense because then that drives people to actually go to the studio. If you're just offering the same exact workout digitally, then what's the incentive to ever go into the studio, right? Yeah, you're right. I, gosh, I love that. And it's almost like it was, it was really a wake up call for finding that digital programming was creating more of this accessible feeling and accessible experience for the mass, for the masses. It really is a wake up call to better understand what our messaging should look like in the future if we want to continue reaching those audiences. So that's very interesting. I love that thought process. And I'm curious then from your perspective, if we kind of shifted over to the business, the business owner's lens, how are you seeing fitness operators looking at membership growth rates and the other metrics that we used to track back in the day? Are you seeing it shift? Yeah, well, I mean, I think owners and operators have to temper their expectations, right? Like in 2020, industry revenue went was down 58%, you know, 17% of gyms and studios never reopened after COVID, right? So I think there was a big focus from acquisition to retention during COVID, whereas before, like, it's like acquisition is sexy, right? That's like, oh, you're doing the ads. It's the sales process, the closing ratio, how many new members came in the door, but so many fitness businesses neglect how many people are you bleeding out the back end, right? It's not just about getting them in the door. It's about one, improving frequency. So if somebody is coming into the studio and visiting you two times a week, how can you improve that frequency to maybe three or four times a week, right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, in the gym industry, you want, you know, you just want to sell a membership, but you don't care if people come in and use the facility because then your costs are lower. And I'm like, no, that's the exact opposite. You can't create a raving fan of somebody that never steps in the door or utilizes your programs. And we all know that referrals are like the best type of lead for new members and referrals come from raving fans. So um, I think there's really been this focus on retaining clients, servicing the clients that you have better, right? During COVID and during quarantine, it was kind of weird to run an ad campaign trying to acquire new people when there were so many unknowns. And so I think a lot of brands had to shift to retention. And I think that's made a lot of brands continue to focus on retention and providing a better experience for the members that they have, as opposed to being in this race of constantly acquiring. Acquiring is important, but I would say retention is even more important. 
Definitely. I used to always say when people ask me, oh, Loisa, what's your favorite acquisition strategy? I would just say it's retention. If you can retain clients longer, you don't have to put as much effort into the acquisition process because ultimately the word of mouth referrals, you're right. They are the best lead driving revenue source or lead driver source because ultimately consumers are more apt to actually buy into a product or service offering when they're hearing that their friend and family member is just absolutely loving the product. Right. And it's about retaining. I mean, when I say retention, it's also the staff, right? So I think sometimes a lot of gym owners are really focused on retaining members and they don't necessarily worry about retaining their staff or their talent. But boy, oh boy, right now, everyone's really in that, you know, in, in retention mode with their employees because it's hard to find people and retain them when there are so many you know, everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. Everyone wants to go direct to consumer and monetize themselves, which isn't, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, in some cases, people have been really successful. And in others, they're like, okay, wait, I don't know how to do sales and marketing. I know how to teach a badass class. And now I don't know how to get an audience. Um, but yeah, re retaining your staff is really important too. I think that's another big shift that I've seen that I'm happy to see. That's great. And completely agree. You know, if, if we're trying to create this experience inside the, inside the studios, it all comes down to the experiences that the staff is delivering, how the instructors are communicating with the members, how they're connecting with them and connecting with them on a deeper level as well. And that's how ultimately it comes down full circle. That's how you retain your clients as well. Right. And that's what I think, you know, that's, that creates the experience. Everybody's always talking about experience and, and community, but it's really like, when it comes down to it, it's that feeling, right? It's that like je ne sais quoi that people keep coming back for. It's either the personality of the instructors, the vibe of the clients that are there together. It's not because like, oh, you have this one specific treadmill, like, oh, that's going to keep me coming back for more. It's really all those things that happen inside those four walls that are really like the intangibles. It's the vibe. Um, and so you really need that that key staff and personnel to, to create that vibe, to keep people coming back for more. Yeah, definitely. When we're thinking about more so on the acquisition standpoint and lead generation tactics, are you seeing that, you know, kind of flipping it back over to the consumer's perspective, are you seeing that how we think about lead gen needs to be shifted in a different way because consumers are ultimately everywhere now at this point? They could be in a different location. They're not always at home. Maybe they can be at home and it's a completely hybrid approach. Right. I think acquisition is getting trickier and trickier. I mean, I think it's all about relationships, right? Um, so I love to see like a lot of strategic partnerships that are happening. I think that's a really smart acquisition strategy right now. Um, I think, you know, more of a switch towards search engine marketing and geofencing because those people are looking for you, right? They're typing in those keywords. Whereas, you know, so many people had hyped like Facebook and Instagram ads, but those people aren't necessarily looking for you. They're scrolling through their feed. And if they see something interesting, they'll click on it. Um, but it's, you know, with the new iOS update and costs going up, it's becoming less and less you know, attractive. So I really think for acquisition, you know, the partnerships um, is really where it's at. 
Definitely. I want to get your feedback on that too, your perspective. When it comes to the strategic partnerships, even from an acquisition perspective, we're seeing a lot of organizations like, for instance, Lululemon acquired Mirror and they're really starting to think through how can we take two like-minded businesses and put it together to create this really holistic customer experience. What's your take on those type of partnerships as a means to really drive customer acquisition and just overall create this whole new strategy for the business? Well, I think it's gotten harder and, uh, and you know, the, the market's gotten harder in that like the digital fitness landscape, just like, you know, I don't know, not quintupled. I don't know like what the right word is, but it just like exploded. Right. So the competition is, is steep. Um, the cost of marketing has gone up finding talented salespeople, you know, finding talent has become increasingly difficult as well. And the B2C market, you know, like competing with some of these big names, you know, like, look, Amazon has the halo, you have Apple Fitness. I mean, they already have a client base that they're marketing to, and they have incredible budgets. So I think, B2B sales really holds a lot of potential because it's it just lowers your cost of acquisition. You have a captive audience in front of you. So for example, like, you know, this Fabletics Hydro partnership really makes so much sense. I mean, Fabletics is already, you know, like a reoccurring monthly subscription. You know, Hydro is the at-home fitness um, offering. And it just makes a lot of sense. It's like you have your you're not competing with this other company, but they service the same demographic. So instead of going out and acquiring one-off clients, you're able to target your message to a group of people that basically are your ideal client. So it's just such a smart way to do business, working on strategic partnerships. And sometimes people say like, oh, well, isn't that a competitor? And it's like, you have to look at other businesses as potential collaborators, not as competitors. And like, how can we make this a win-win for both sides? And oftentimes you're really able to make some major magic at a much lower uh, price point um, and and acquisition costs when you're able to work these strategic partnerships out. Yeah, of course. And there's so much power for what you just said. They're, They're called strategic partnerships for a reason because they're strategic. And when we think about it, the best way to look at it is having one should make you a better person, a better consumer, a better business by having the other. And having that truly collaborative approach, I mean, it comes down to the very beginning of what you've mentioned as well. It's meeting the consumers where they are and what they're needing. You know, something also that's it's very top of mind is going public. IPOs are popping up everywhere. I mean, F45 training is now to believe $1.6 billion valuation. Exponential just came out last week. And now Equinox is also starting to steadily follow. How are you seeing the industry shifting in this way? Well, I mean... It is an exciting time and it's a great way, you know, going public is a great way to raise funds. And there's been this kind of weird and, you know, also like SPACs are really happening. Like, I think that, you know, there's been a bit of a thinning of a herd, you know, like I said, like we, you know, 17% of studios and gyms didn't open, you know, there was a lot of bankruptcy that was being filed as a result of the pandemic. And I think going public was, you know, a lot of these companies hadn't survived. And so the ones that, 
did, you know, this is a great strategy for them moving forward. Um, you know, I think Exponential is a tremendous company. It's insane that they experienced growth throughout the pandemic when so many businesses were shuttering. Um, and, you know, that made me invest in them on Friday when the IPO <laughs> came out. I was like, all right, you know, um, this is this is a solid company. Fabletics that I mentioned earlier is also going to be filing um, you know, it, it's really interesting and exciting to see what's happening. I think, you know, more and more fitness needs to become more mainstream and thought of as a business. It's like, I've been in this industry for 20 years and I can't tell you how many people have asked me when I was going to get a real job, you know, cause all my friends had like, you know, quote unquote professional jobs. And here I was working in the fitness world and they thought I was wearing like, a leotard to work every day. I'm like, no, I'm working like behind the scenes, like running the business. <laughs> so it's just really great to see so much interest in fitness. And I think to me, it's like a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's just the more eyes and ears we can get on the fitness industry, the better it is for us all. Completely agree. Oh, goodness. That's just brought up memories. Anytime better. The business executives inside the fitness and fitness and wellness industry were all wearing leggings and sneakers to go to work and go into the office, but it's completely normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. So any exciting things coming up that we can expect from you? Um, well, my my episode, uh, my podcast, rather, um, the business side of fitness, I'll be publishing my 100th episode next month, which is really exciting for me. I started that podcast as a passion project. And it's been really cool to just meet and network and connect with and share the stories of so many interesting people doing really cool stuff in fitness. Um, and then other than that, I'm continuing to consult providing sales and marketing strategies for fitness and wellness brands. And I am also working on a professional uh, networking concept for fitness and wellness professionals. So stay tuned there. Oh, goodness, so much to come from. And yes, definitely. I definitely want to be able to hear more of so many exciting things that's coming up from the business side of the business side of fitness podcast. So incredible, incredible work. And I've honestly just been inspired this entire time. I've been listening since day one of launch. Well, thank you. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. Well, final question. If you could give advice to a young woman that is desiring to be a future entrepreneur, what would you share with them? Um, I think just anybody that's becoming an entrepreneur really needs to surround themselves with people that value their experience, opinions, and perspectives. And, you know, the other thing that I would say is just, I would separate yourself. This is actually like kind of ironic work advice, but I would create a separation between yourself and your work. You know, one mistake that I made that I hope people can learn from is I really identified my self-worth with my performance at work, always achieving, you know, having sales metrics, always going above and beyond, hitting budgets. Like my self-worth and how I saw myself was always really performance-based tied to work. However, I'm so much more than my work. I love my work, but I'm more than that. And you are too. So I would just, I think the fitness industry is such a passion led 
business and, and industry that it can be kind of intoxicating and all consuming. And I definitely made the mistake of really like making my work life and my personal life one and the same for quite some time. And I would just encourage any female or any entrepreneur out there to really create some separation in their life to have other things that fill them up, not just work. I love that. And really it comes down to identifying and understanding what work-life balance means. And we have to be more intentional today now more than ever before. Um, so thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. I mean, I listen, I've made a million mistakes in my life and that's just one of them. But, you know, I, I hope that, you know, people can learn from that because, you know, they're, it's so important to have your own identity and your own life outside of work. Agreed. Awesome. Well, thank you, Vanessa, for your time. And as mentioned, make sure to check out Vanessa's podcast, The Business Side of Fitness, to get an insider's look on health and fitness. Looking to hear more? Subscribe to this podcast and we'll catch you next time on The Drift.